0: Our sermon text for this morning is Psalm 27. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pew, you can find it on page 460. As you turn there, I want us to consider what today is. Today is the last Sunday of 2019. In a couple days we will begin not only a new year, we will begin a new decade. And even in the midst of a holiday season, which is often more hectic than we would like, it is a natural time for us to reflect. We have gotten many Christmas cards over the past few weeks where people highlight what has happened in their life over the past year. There has been an onslaught of articles online of decade in review, lists of best and worst of the 2010s or whatever we call it. A lot can happen in a year, and certainly a lot can happen in 10 years. I was thinking this week about our family. A decade ago, we had three sons under the age of four and no daughters. My wife was the only one who provided some feminine balance. Today, those three boys are all double digits. One of them is a teenager and the girls have pulled into a tie with a sister for each brother. Things have happened in all of our lives over the past decade. Things have happened in our world, in our culture. As we come to the brink of a new year, though, we don't just look back, we look ahead. We set goals or resolutions We seek to plan and prepare for what might be coming. Think about what this decade might hold for some of you. This might be the decade that some of you get married. The next 10 years, some of you may have kids. I can say with confidence, some of you will have kids in the next 10 years. Some of you will graduate from kindergarten or high school or college or grad school, probably not all of them, but maybe multiples of those. Some of you, this next decade will be the decade where you get your driver's license, which is both exciting, perhaps terrifying for parents. For some of you, on the other side, this this will be the decade in which you retire and you Uh, Look for what is next or where your kids graduate out of your home and you begin a new phase of life. There is much, as we look ahead to the next years, to look forward to and to be excited about. But as we stand on the edge of the 20s, I've been thinking all week that it is so nice to have some clarity after spending the last 20 years, not sure whether to call it the odds or the teens or the tens or the zeros or whatever. We just know, stand on the edge of the 20s, our psalm asks us to pose a very different question. Not what are you excited about, but what are you afraid of? Nice, upbeat, post-Christmas question. For some of you, this is an easy question. You keep a running list, and it is always front and center in your minds. Others of you do everything you can to avoid addressing this question, keeping yourself distracted so that you don't have to face it. Living in fear is a miserable way to live, as we can all testify, because at times we all face fears. So, What are you afraid of? This past semester, I met with a group of students on Friday mornings, and a few months ago, we studied this psalm, and I posed this question to them. They mentioned physical pain and suffering, being alone or rejected or abandoned, failing in their own eyes or being perceived as letting others down. And bugs. I'm guessing many of us identify with their responses. But they are just a sampling of what we might say. Perhaps for you, there is fear around governments or geopolitical conflicts, large-scale cultural trends that keep you up at night. This political party or that political party winning power in an upcoming election. The implications of what that would mean for your life. Or more personally, perhaps it is being out of control, financial insecurity or instability, sickness, betrayal, being exposed, missing out, feeling unloved. Or maybe you're just afraid of the unknown. You don't know what is coming, and that is a fearful thing. The reality is we cannot avoid these things, You don't have to look far in the news or observing life around you to see that the reality that we live in is a world marked by disease and oppression and natural disasters and conflict, car accidents, violent and certain eventual death. And we live in a digital age where we get to not only hear about these things that are happening locally, we hear about them when they happen all over the world. We are constantly reminded There is much to fear. And when we consider the future year, you can be confident that some of these things will impact every one of us in this room. And those are just a sample of some of the external things we could be afraid of. There's a whole range of frightening possibilities within our own hearts and minds, what we might be capable of or ways that we might bring trouble to ourselves or others. And as my college friend reminded me, as if that isn't enough, we have to navigate all of that, never knowing when we might encounter a little insect or countless other things that pale in comparison to the big things but nevertheless add to our fears. It is no wonder that according to a Harvard University study, over 60% of college students have reported that in the last year, they have felt overwhelmingly anxious. Is it possible to live in such a world without being overwhelmingly anxious? The good news is that God has spoken, and the answer is clearly yes. We're going to hear about that in our psalm this morning, so let's turn now to God's Word. But before we do so, would you please pray with me? Father, your word says, call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. So, Lord, we call to you and we ask you to answer us and to show us marvelous things from your word. Would you feed your people this morning from your word? And just as our physical food strengthens our bodies, would you feed us such that we would be strengthened? To have courage for this life which you have given to us. Pray that you would plant your word deep into our hearts, that it would bear fruit in our lives and beyond, to the praise of your name. It is in the mighty name of Christ that we ask these things. Amen. Psalm 27. These words were written by David, who has already been mentioned in our prayer of confession and in the psalm that Peter used for our congregational prayer. He is the second king of Israel and a man who is familiar with frightening situations. As a boy, he faced lions and bears protecting his father's sheep. As a very young man, he fought the giant Goliath. Shortly after that, he was personally attacked by the king of Israel and spent years outmanned and running for his life. Later in his life, his son Absalom tried to take David's throne by force. In the process, David was mocked, humiliated, driven from his home, and surrounded by an army that dwarfed those who were with him. David knew fearful circumstances over and over again, which is why it is so encouraging and so helpful to hear his words. This morning, we are going to look at this psalm in three parts. In verses 1 through 6, we will consider David's confidence. Verses 7 through 13, David's cry. And finally, in verse 14, David's counsel. First, David's confidence. Verse 1 sets the tone for the whole of the psalm. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord, the Lord who made heaven and earth, the Lord who put everything and everyone together and who holds them together continually. This Lord, this God is David's light. God illuminates David's life. In the darkness, you are vulnerable to someone sneaking up Upon you, with light, you dwell secure. In darkness, you can lose your path and get lost or fall into a pit or trap. In the light, you are guided rightly. In darkness, there is uncertainty. In the light, you have knowledge. For David, this guidance, this knowledge, this security comes from one place, comes from God. And notice that it does not say here, God gives me light and salvation. No, God is his light and is his salvation, delivering David from foes without and sin within. And so David asks a rhetorical question, with God by my side, whom could I possibly fear? With this God as my light and my salvation, what I have to be afraid of. He uses repetition then to reinforce this point. God is my stronghold. The stronghold is what must be taken for a king or a nation or an army to be defeated. Well, who can defeat God? Therefore, again, David declares Whom shall I fear? David moves on in verse 2 and 3 to speak to the specific situations in which he has found himself. Assailed by enemies who desire his destruction, surrounded by an army encamped against him. This is no theoretical proposition for David, stating strong trust when he's facing nothing of the reality. No, he is in the middle of it. There is no clear consensus when David wrote this psalm, but the most likely guess and the most frequently guessed time frame is when he is fleeing from his son Absalom near the end of his life. And so it seems likely that there were actual people seeking to destroy David and not for the first time, and that there was an army actually encamped against him. And yet, in the midst of that, in the midst of these circumstances, he remains confident. He says, my heart shall not fear, and I will be confident. Which is why... He then moves in verse 4 to saying that he has asked the Lord for something. This one in whom he is confident is now the one he is turning to, to ask for help. What would you ask for if there were an army surrounding you? I would probably ask for escape, personally. Protection which is what David does but he does it in a roundabout way. He knows where his protection comes from and so he says that the one thing he has asked God for is that he and that he will seek after is to dwell in the house of God, to dwell with the Lord. And David here is not Desiring to become a priest who will spend all his time in the temple of God, but is conveying his longing for communion and fellowship with God, that he might take in God's beauty and inquire of or meditate upon the Lord. In the presence of God, he knows that he will be hidden in the day of trouble, concealed and lifted out of danger, And it is helpful to note as we go through here that God does not always remove trouble and hardship from his people. In fact, often following God results in extra trouble and hardship. But he does promise that on the day of trouble, he will be with you. One author put it this way, safety is not an exemption from trouble, but in being in his care, and protection. And David is so sure of this protection that he has already planned in verse 6 how he will respond to the deliverance which he is counting on with joy and worship and praise to the Lord who is his light and his stronghold and his salvation. So we see here a man who, though facing circumstances that would be prone to make us fear, says that he is confident. Where does this confidence come from? Clearly, from his relationship with God, from his knowledge of the nature and character of God, and from God's previous, previous deliverances of David in particular, and of the people of Israel in general. David also has another unique avenue of confidence. God has made some promises to David about his reign as king and the continuation of his kingdom after he dies. Promises that give David confidence in the midst of many of his trials that this defeat at the hands of an enemy is not how his reign and his life are going to end So David finds confidence that God, who will be consistent with his character and promises, is going to act. And these three things, the character of God, his mighty acts that he has done, and his future promises form a cord of faith and trust and confidence, which is not easily broken and to which David can cling Before we move to verse 7, I want to make a, a little observation. I have come over the past semester to really appreciate tenses in the Bible. So if you're not an English major and you don't want to think about school right now, I'm sorry. In the Psalms especially, so often the Psalms move back and forth between the past and the present and the future. Again and again, remembering the past and anticipating the future meet to inform life in the present. The nature and character of God, His past works on behalf of His people and His future promises moving forward all conspire to allow David to be confident no matter what he is facing in the present. And the same is true for you and I. Here in the first six verses, he is really just echoing much of what we already heard in Psalm 9, as Peter prayed, much of what is already part of his much more familiar Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Knowing that who God is and that God is with him David is able to say I will not fear and it is in light of his confidence in God that David then turns from talking about the Lord to crying out to him in verse 7 some more recent scholars find that the change between 6 and 7 is so abrupt they think this must be two different songs that someone tried to force together But it is a very natural turn. When he is in a dangerous situation, David runs to the one on whom he depends. If we only had verses 1 through 6, it might feel out of reach to have that sort of trust in the face of fearful days. But isn't it encouraging that David cries out to God? In the Gospels, Jesus encounters a man whose son is possessed by an evil spirit. When Jesus presses the man on his belief and whether his son can be healed or not, the man cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. And David, here in this psalm, is doing something very similar. Verses 1 through 6, I believe. Verses 7 through 13, help my unbelief. It's actually, in fact, a pattern that continues through the entire prayer. As he prays, he cycles through a number of requests of God followed by declaring what is true. In verse 7, he asks God to listen to him, and then in verse 8, reminds God that he is doing what God has commanded, seeking his face. In verse 9, he pleads with God to not cast him off or forsake him, to not hide from him or turn him away. And then in verse 10, he declares that this is the God of his salvation, and even if mother and father forsake him, the Lord never Will. We have no record of David's mother or father ever abandoning him, although it's possible that that may have happened and not been recorded. Either way, the declaration is the same. No matter who else forsakes me, no matter who else turns me out, David says the Lord never will. In verse 11 and 12, David asks God to teach him and to lead him such that his enemies do not get the best of him, that those who breathe out violence and bear false witness would not trip him up. And then in verse 13, he makes another glorious declaration that he will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living David here is wrestling with faith. He is wrestling with God. He is asking God to be faithful to who he is, what he has already done, and what he has said he would do. And then he is reminding himself of the confidence he can have that God will hear and answer his prayers. And confident in his circumstances, confident that the Lord hears his cry, he concludes this psalm with counsel, both for himself. And for those who would hear his words wait for the lord be strong and let your heart take courage wait for the lord david's counsel is simple and straightforward and yet so difficult wait for the lord you will need courage and strength to face the realities of life. Living in this world is not for the faint of heart, as we have already thought about. David says that courage will come by waiting on the Lord. What does it mean to wait? Is David encouraging us to just sit and do nothing until God does whatever God will do. No, this is not a passive waiting. It is an active one. We wait for God by reminding ourselves of the character of God, reminding ourselves of the promise of God, crying out to God. We read His Word, we gather together with His people, and we pray. So often, we evaluate God based on our circumstances. To wait for God is to do the opposite to start with who He is, what He has said and done, and then we look at our circumstances through that lens. In the New Testament, Paul exhorts us to look at what is unseen rather than what is seen, for what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. How much needless fear do we carry around because we get this backwards? To wait on the Lord is to fight to fix our eyes on what is eternal and unseen. In his book, The Silver Chair, C.S. Lewis writes about two children who are called out of this world and into the world of Narnia. They find themselves high on a mountain, and Aslan, the god figure of the story, is giving them signs they will need to follow to accomplish the task he has for them. He makes them repeat the instructions over and over and over again. And then... He tells them he's going to send them down from the mountain into the world below. But first, he gives them this one last word of instruction. First, he says, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night. And when you wake in the middle of the night, and whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look. When you meet them there, that is why it is so important that you know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters same is true for us. There are times of clarity when it feels like the air is clear and our mind is clear, but when we drop into everyday life, it often seems like the air thickens. It's hard to remember what seems so obvious a few days or weeks or even minutes ago, which is why it is so important to take great care and fight to remember God and His Word. In Psalm 27, David is doing exactly that. He is fighting to remember and to believe what is true in spite of all appearances. And Christians must do the same. David's confidence can be the confidence of the Christian. David's cry can be the cry of the Christian, and David's counsel can be the counsel to the Christian. It can be, it it should be, the confidence and the cry of our hearts and the counsel that we heed. The character of God, his past acts, and his future promises mean that we can live in a fearful world without being overwhelmed. The character of God has not changed. He is the same today as he was in David's day, always has been, and always will be. We have an entire book that is a testament to his past faithfulness and mighty acts in addition to our own experiences and the experiences of saints for the last 2,000 years. And while we may not have the same specific promises that David had for his reign and kingdom, we have a plethora of New Testament promises that are at least as good, if not better. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you the Apostle Paul wrote that he who did not spare his own son but graciously gave him to us will not withhold any good thing from us, that nothing can ever separate God's people from God's love. Philippians tells us he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. And Jesus has promised that he will return and you will be with him forever in an eternity with no more tears or sorrow or pain, or fear. If God is who he says he is, and if he is with you, truly nothing can stand against you. One commentator I was reading this week put it this way, one almighty is mightier than all mighties. It is as easy for God to stand against an entire army as it is for him to stand against a single man. I don't know what all of you are facing. I don't know what any of us will face in the days and years to come, but I know that God is bigger and stronger and more determined than any of it. And if you're here this morning and you don't think any of this is real, just a nice story that helps some people to deal with the harshness of the world, maybe even a good thing, just not your thing, you're right. If this is not true, if this is not absolutely and universally true, if God is not who David believed him to be, if this book is a book of human fiction, then Christians, I am building my life on a crumbling foundation that may help me to feel a little bit better sometimes, but is ultimately going to collapse. But I want us to remember again where we are at in the calendar. Because not only are we on the brink of a new year, we have also just celebrated Christmas. And listen to what was announced the night that Jesus was born. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Joyful news that brings peace and not fear, and will be for all people. The Son of God came to earth to dwell. God in flesh. He is the security of all the promises of God. He is the full assurance of final and total victory for God and his people. He was abandoned, he faced false witnesses, he was given up to the will of his adversaries. All the things that David did not have to face because God protected him, Jesus did. His head was bowed down that ours might be lifted up. He faced the wrath of God that we might know the smile of God. David spoke of God as his light and salvation. Jesus was the light of the world which shone into the darkness so that he might bring salvation to all who will believe. His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection mean that you and I can be reconciled to God, and we who are enemies can be adopted as sons and daughters. And if God is your Father, whom shall you fear? So if you don't believe any of that, that's okay. I'm glad you're here. Thank you for taking the time to join us this morning, but I want to ask you a question. If not that Lord, if not the Lord that David talks about, if not the Lord who was born on Christmas Day, what is your light and your stronghold? What is your refuge in this world, and are you confident in it? Maybe your trust is in your savings and financial security, or in another person, a friend, or a partner, or a parent. Maybe it's in yourself. Can you speak about your light and salvation in the way that David speaks about the Lord? And if you can't, or when those things fail, because they will, none of them are capable of holding that weight. They can all be good things, but none of them were designed to bear that burden, to be the stronghold of your life. When your refuge fails, better yet, before it fails, consider turning to the Lord. Making him the stronghold of your life and waiting on him. I promise it will be worth any cost. Many of you have already made that choice, have already placed your trust in God and he is your refuge and your light and your salvation and your stronghold. Psalm 27 is an exhortation, exhortation to keep seeking him. Wait on him, seek his face, We live in the in-between, in the same way that we find ourselves this morning, between Christmas and a new year. The first Christmas and the new heavens and the new earth are what we live between right now. Jesus has come, he has died, he has risen from the dead, and he has promised he will return and make all things new. But that new day has not yet come. David gives us in this psalm a blueprint for how to live in this middle ground. For how to not be overwhelmed in the midst of a fear-filled world. How to be confident because of God. How to believe and at the same time fight unbelief by crying out to God. Reminding ourselves of who he is, what he has done, and what he has promised. And then asking him to act. Encourage you, make it your goal for 2020 or the 2020s, or the rest of your life, to be devoted to single-minded pursuit of God through Jesus Christ, asking Him to draw nearer to you, seeking His face, praising Him, and waiting on Him, whatever joys or sorrows lie ahead. He who promised is faithful. He will not forsake you. I am confident that I will look on the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, and I am confident that all who place their hope in God through Jesus Christ will as well. Wait for the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you that you who have created us have made yourself known. That you who were far off have come near. Oh, Lord, help us to know what it is to live without fear because we are hidden in Christ. That God is our light and our salvation. Oh, Lord, would you be the light and salvation that you have promised to be? Would you guide and protect and watch over us? And would you lead us unto that eternal land where we will dwell in peace with you forever joyfully. In the name of your Son, Christ, who purchased these things for us, we pray, amen.